There was once, we know, an automaton constructed in such a way that it could respond to every move by a chess player with a counter move that would ensure the winning of the game. A puppet wearing Turkish attire and with a hookah in its mouth sat before a chessboard placed on a large table. A system of mirrors created the illusion that this table was transparent on all sides. Actually, a hunchbacked dwarf, a master at chess, sat inside and guided the puppet's hand by means of strings. One can imagine a philosophic counterpart to this apparatus. The puppet, called historical materialism, is to win all the time. It can easily be a match for anyone if it enlists the services of theology, which today, as we know, is small and ugly and has to keep out of sight. There's a picture by Clay called Angelus Novus. It shows an angel who seems about to move away from something he stares at. His eyes are wide, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how the angel of history must look. His face is turned toward the past. Where a chain of events appears before us, he sees one single catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it at its feet. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is blowing from, the par from paradise and has got caught in his wings. It is so strong that the angel can no longer close them. The storm drives him irresistibly into the future, to which his back is turned while the pile of debris before him grows toward the sky. What we call progress is this storm. Hello, and welcome to the Always Hardy Podcast. We have great news. Not only are we talking about Benjamin, but Rachel's back. Yay! Hey, y'all! Missed you. Missed you guys Definitely. more. And we appreciate your messianic return. Always on time. <laughs> Just in time. <laughs> How are we going to define time? <laughs> um, so what you heard just then was us reading the first and the ninth of Benny Means Theses in On the Concept of History, which is, I don't know, one of the, as we were talking about beforehand, it's a very short text, but one of the most generative or something like that. Yeah, it needs a lot of unpacking. Sure. That's, I think, For a word sure. on theory. <laughs> yes, bingo. it is. <laughs> Let's unpack. Um, <laughs> we're all <doing> some unpacking. <laughs> um, so before we do that, a couple of things real quick. We're going to be talking about um, on the concept of history by Benjamin. It gets translated variously. Um, sometimes it's about theses on the philosophy of history. Mm -hmm. um, we're using the translation in the fourth volume of Walter Benjamin's Selected Writings, edited by Island and Jennings, for those of you following along at home. Um, so we'll try to refer to theses numbers when we're talking. Yeah. Um, coming up later, we have some wonderful questions to answer and give advice about. So that'll be fun. My favorite segment. That's right. My friend from Canada. Tumblr. Tumblr. Friend from Canada. My friend from Canada on Tumblr. Okay. I was going to say that. Oh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. So before you're going, we're going to have uh, a brief summary insofar as summary of is possible of this text. On this week's episode of Always Already Podcast, we're going to be discussing Walter Benjamin's On the Concept of History, also known as the Theses on the Philosophy of History. This particular piece by Benjamin was written in 1940, the year he also died, upon his return to Paris after being incarcerated. At the time, he was part of a group of Jewish refugees who were escaping Paris. Um, and trying to make their way to Spain, but were eventually turned in 
uh, at the hands of French conspirators. The historical moment leading up to this very much frames uh, the context of this piece. And interestingly, this was not originally intended for publication. He gave it to his uh, friend Brecht before he died, and Brecht later published it. So this context is important for understanding the concept of history, as it arguably represents fragments, themes, and in Benjamin's words, constellations, more than it does a linear treatise. In this piece, we see clearly his unique writing style, one which refuses to be linear or to follow causal lines of reasoning. As Susan Sontag has argued, Benjamin, quote, had to say everything before the inward gaze of total concentration dissolved the subject before his eyes, a freeze-frame Baroque style of writing and cognition, end quote. So in the same way Benjamin discourages the reader from understanding history monolithically throughout on the concept of history, he writes in such a way that it's difficult, or perhaps quite deliberately, for the reader to follow one cohesive line of reasoning. Rather, the reader must understand Benjamin's line of thought through constellations, the overlapping and contingent, though, as Susan Buck Morse points out, not arbitrary, clusters of images presenting his ideas. Throughout these 20 theses, Benjamin uses several metaphors to highlight various concentric themes and to explore several questions. His theses are ultimately a critique of historicism and relatedly historical materialism. Who are the victors of history? Who is left behind? Who gets to define, label, and categorize time within the boundaries of history, and who does not? How does dogmatism shape the frames through which we understand history? And how can we recover the lived material experiences that are left out of history when it is only conceived of as progressive or as marching towards some teleological end? In his first thesis, one of the most often quoted, Benjamin likens historical materialism, and in particular, its championing by his contemporary German social democrats to a Turk playing chess and smoking hookah. Inside the Turk is a dwarf, otherwise known as theology. Of course, there are many interpretations, but one common reading of this vivid metaphor is that historical materialism is itself a form of religion, one that should inculcate suspicion in its potential dogmatism and or manipulation of how we conceive of history itself. In another of the most famous theses, Thesis 9, Benjamin invokes the angel of history, inspired by, inspired by Paul Klee's 1920 painting, Angelus Novus. And he pushes against the notion of a progressive past that leads to a teleological end, propelled continually by revolution, and in the case of his historical materialism, class struggle. By one reading, he instead wants to, quote, save the past, to save those who are not the victors of history, who have been subsumed under the pile of rubble he describes as building towards the sky. This critique frames his later thesis within which he describes the Messiah at odds with the Antichrist. Though interpretations, of course, vary, this invocation potentially sets up the drastic division within historical materialism between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Throughout all of his theses, Benjamin invokes the term redemption either directly or indirectly in various ways causing us to explore how he sees, if at all, the rectification of the wrongs committed by historical materialism, and more broadly, by the monopolization of history. Does redemption stand in for the recovery of those elements of the past that have been lost? For the lived, real experiences of those who are left out of monolithic accounts of the past? Something else? 
Of course, this is just one interpretation, one attempt to summarize a series of images that for each reader can take on many shifting meanings. Stay tuned for our discussion. I think a good place to start would be talking we all about the writing style itself. We were all just reading Benjamin out loud and sort of agree that we fell into a little bit of a trance. There's something magical about the way he's writing. Um, and I think talking about that, it's also important to acknowledge as we were discussing before that he actually didn't intend for this piece to be published. And he gave it to Brecht a little bit before he died and right. Brecht decided to publish it. And so the format um, and, and the writing itself, how does that kind of play into one the ideas which will kind of flush out but also the effect mm. i mean probably it makes me think of nietzsche because we just heard a presentation oh, at a yeah, comment yesterday right. by friend of the podcast former cody former cody, Campbell. cody who was talking about nietzsche and aphorism um and while i don't want to like reduce benjamin to the form or the style of this text i think it is it's just different it's a different kind of reading that one's is engaging and it's a different, I mean, orientation in relation to mm. the text. Yeah, I think, yeah, it, it came across as, as both poetic, but also in a way rigorous. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. That yeah. even though it's filled with a, with a metaphor, it's a metaphor that, um, God, to use like a kind of a trite term was so impactful. I mean, like it impacted me, this idea of, um, you know, when we said where a chain of events appears before us, he sees one single ca uh, catastrophe, which keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage yeah. and holds it at his feet. I think that's, you know, not only beautiful, but when one thinks about how it, one is philosophizing time or developing a theory of, of history, um, I, I find that very compelling. So I mean, definitely like implicates the reader in the text perhaps more so than like a, a more traditional analytical or philosophical form mm -hmm. which maybe you know i don't i don't know if i want to read intention into it but i think it has the effect of actually bringing the ex make creating some sort of similarity or some sort of analogy or parallel between the reading of the text and some of the ways he's thinking about the relationship in the present to history Right, yeah. where, you know, one can appropriate history at essentially any moment, yeah. right? So there's some sort of kind of active implication of uh, some agent in, active, in activism in history, right? So, like, maybe there's some sort of an implication of the reader uh, slash reader theorist in the text or something. I think that's, yeah, I was going to say that it's not just a reader seeing text on a page, but rather a reader within the text being transformed by that text. And kind of crawling around the text. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that this is set up in little segments, which, again, it's, like, not one-to-one -one aphoristic, but it really is his idea of constellations, which right. is the no notion that there's sort of these overlapping um, theoretical nodes that run into each other and impact each other, rather than there being kind of, you know, coherent definitions. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think he influences Adorno, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I do think that it's interesting. Yeah. There's also this theme for me that comes up a lot, and I'm not sure what his relationship is to wholeness, but... The idea that, like, you know, when the Messiah comes, it makes things whole. He talks in Thesis 9 about um, the angel would like to stay awake in the dead and make whole what has been smashed, but mm. a storm is blowing from paradise and has got caught in his wings. And so there's this idea also of these fragments here that are preventing it from being whole and kind of this being a really different, non-progressive, non-linear way of explicating a theory of time. And so I think in that sense, mm -hmm. the form really follows his exploration in some ways of 
wholeness and fragmentation. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it also opens up multiple different ways to read and reassemble the text, right? Because, you know, a lot of ways, each of the theses could be taken on their own own, for some sort of exegetical or, you know, generative reading. Mm -hmm. Or we can look at the way the different theses juxtapose in a constellation to to one another. We can look at the whole, but where the whole is always a multiplicity or something. Mm-hmm. If we think about the text as a whole, so I think that it performs exactly what you're talking about, Rachel. And even the the, the metaphor of wreckage, like a pile of wreckage mm-hmm. piling, like you know, going towards the sky. I mean, it's sort of the antithesis of a wholeness. It's like, oh look, it's really just these bits and pieces that are impossible to recover and assemble into some kind of whole. And yet, perhaps he's also striving for a wholeness and like working against a brokenness mm-hmm. in a way too, which is maybe where the question of messianic time comes in or that's another well i wonder so of course like he's he's framing this or couching this in um or within historical materialism and i want to and i wondered then when he's looking at wreckage um Mm, what is he defining as wreckage is Mm -hmm. he defining social relations is he defining like the the sort of the the so-called continuation of capitalism is he what is he implicating within this theme of wreckage that he seeks to make whole well on the one hand what would be made whole by the angel of history um and then simultaneously what would be you know in the sense of like the storm that's keeping the angel from doing so is progress Mm -hmm. um so the the critique of progress as being something good Mm -hmm. which is something i think we can all identify with on some level sure i'm having just a a hum a hum a homogenous theme of progress is mm-hmm. problematic but how do we think through progress where it's not necessarily problematic or is it only progress in this historical moment for benjamin when he's hearing from people on the left that and and various others that progress is something to you know is so, to be embraced or and the other thing is there's a kind of Weberian notion here too that's that's been oh. developed is bring it um there's this kind of iron cage idea that um that Weber was uh mm. developing in, in the Protestant ethic and what is escaping the iron cage and in this and in fact what we hold to be progress is what Weber says is an, is a nullity is in fact something that is not civilization it is you know the spiritualists without heart and sensualists without spirit and those those kinds of things that I think kind of resonate when I read that resonated with me mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So a question then for me is, do you want to then situate Weber on disenchantment and Benjamin saying that there's a problem that theology is nasty and ugly and has to keep out of sight? Is that the move that you're pointing uh, to? I think somewhat, because I I still want to interrogate what Benjamin meant by that, because I'm not exactly sure. By which specific thing? The the, uh, idea of theology. Before we do that, I want to go back to what Rachel was saying, because I think it... It sets up a way to think through the questions right. you just posed, B. And I liked, Rachel, when you said that wholeness is something that he's very clearly working against, but also at times something he seems to want or something that the, that the messianic can, can construct or appropriate or something. And I think that that fits into this question, these questions that B is asking because the wholeness that he's fighting against is the wholeness of the history that he says is inherited by the victors 
right? And so that you can only inherit history from the victors by, like, stepping over the bodies of those who were left behind or destroyed mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, so that's the wholeness that he's fighting against is to what the wholeness, that's the wholeness that's danger. Um, and this can pr- produces the state of emergency that he says from the perspective of those who are not the victors. It's always been a state of emergency. Right, right. right? Now, as for the messianic wholeness to come, I think that that's harder to piece through. Mm-hmm. It's harder to piece through. But it's but that's why it's more, I mean, it's less that I'm sort of making a rigorous argument for that. Yeah, absolutely. And more that there's a feeling evoked here that's, you can feel a pain that he's writing. Oh, about, totally. You know, like when you said that was really moving when we just kind of read it. It's like you feel a pain in the way that he's describing wreckage and wholeness and the hurt of those who were left behind. And well, I mean, he's writing this, you know, near the end of his life before he commits suicide so as right. to not be captured by Nazis or right. by fascists in Spain, perhaps more particularly. Yeah. And I will, and, and seeing that, emo- or feeling that emotion working through it was something that was so, um, which is in itself transformative and actually allowed me to think through my own problems when I start thinking of like either utopianism or hmm. the transcendent. Mm. Hmm. Um, when I have my problems with the transcendent, but then I read what Benjamin is writing about it, I feel moved enough to at least want to think through what that transcendent moment could be. Hmm. Where, you know, I know I bring up Levinas a lot, but, you know, hmm. for that one, and I'll do it just, uh, allow drink. me. That's I-47. Drink. I know. <laughs> drink. Um, if there is, that, that should be a drinking game for our listeners, but if, uh, anyway, that, you know, what, what would then allow us to come together? What, what then would piece together these fractured moments in such a way as that these social relations that are splintered mm-hmm. and filled with conquered peoples or mm-hmm. filled with death, um, can then allow us to form human relations that if I'm reading, I'm reading myself into this, but human relations built on recognition, reciprocity and respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I think Levinas works really well there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it wasn't just an isolated Levinasian quote, but like it, I think it, f- it filled a, a gap that I had right. when I'm reading this. It's like there is this transcendent moment that Benjamin is working towards, but what could it, what would that look like? What is that transcendent moment? It's also, I mean, it reminds me also in mechanical reproduction, his discussion of the aura mm-hmm. and how that gets I'm lost. I'm not familiar with that work. I'm we're trying. He's basically talking about, again, he uses all these amazing metaphors, but is mm-hmm. talking about when um, works of art or artifacts are reproduced. And John, please step in if I'm messing this up. Are reproduced um, over time mm-hmm. and, re- and appropriated by fascists, essentially, by the Antichrist, as he says in this, this piece, if you can kind of sort of pull them together okay. loosely. Um, you're losing an aura that was specific to the time, place, and context of the original see, production yeah. of that artifact. And it's basically an argument um, in one read of, of appropriation by the fascist of um, an original artifact. Sounds a lot like um, he also wrote a piece, The Work of the Translator, right? Um, or The the Task of the Translator. I task of Translation. Tra- task of Translation. Yeah. I think that he was making a similar argument mm. in that vein as well, is... Um, you know, capture what what happens in, at least in capturing the moment of, of a particular writing if it's being transposed into another language and like what's lost in that, but not just like the kind of banal question of like what's lost in translation. Yeah. Um, but you know, really the maybe there's an effect affective condition that is truly being erased or obscured. But I think it also, sorry, so you brought in Levinas. I'm going to bring in my 
my man adore Do it. Do it. Theo. <laughs> Good old Because obviously they were chummy. They were. They, they were. were. I mean, their correspondences are voluminous. Yeah. Um, but so Adorno's idea about the concept that that which it describes can never fully um, mm. adequately be mm. fit into it. Yeah. So we have concepts and the concept can never fully describe the object. There's always an, a, a piece left behind. An overflow. Which or he a calls, or, yeah, yeah, he calls the remainder, the, remainder, the non-identical. Right. And actually now I'm only thinking of this. Obviously they really influenced each other and they both talked about constellations and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, but, but that almost reminds me of Adorno's critique of the concept and the violence the concept does, the violence of categories. Yeah. Reminds me in some ways of the way that Benjamin is talking about time. So he's using the word time mm-hmm. and he's not saying the concept. Obviously mm-hmm. he's saying concept of history or philosophy mm-hmm. of history. But um, when we think of time in a specific way, when we monopolize time, when time is taken over by the victor and defined by the victor, it does a particular violence to those bodies that are left behind that didn't get to define time itself. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost right. like an appropriation of time that leaves things behind, right. in this case, bodies. And so I almost see they're both making a critique about mm-hmm. the violence done by um, the manipulation of a definition or a category. I finally sense. get, oh, and so it's funny that you mentioned that because as you were saying this and as I, and as I was reading his reflections on historicism, um, it then reminded me of like going through and reading in Foucault and Society Must Be Defended. Um, he talks about the the negativity or the the terrible form of his, of historicism. Um, and th- that was exactly what Benjamin was referring to hmm. here. And it clarified a moment, like uh, speaking of consolations, but it clarified all of these moments where I'm going, well, what's good? What is good about historicizing a thing? Aren't we always supposed to be historicizing according to, you know, J- someone like Jameson, um, and how, or to what extent, um, is to historicize, to do violence to, you know, to people, to the mm. past, to whatever that yeah. past might be. Um, what's being left out of that, those categorizations. Now that, mm-hmm. Spot on, Rachel. Yeah. The Foucault thing is interesting because, as you were saying, I was thinking back to what, you know, we talked about a few minutes ago about how one of the things that historicism does, right, is turn it into a history of the victors, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. such that the knowledges are history. Yeah. So, the, so, you know, in Foucaultian, Foucaultian terms, we would say, so that such that the subjugated knowledge is right, uh, are left behind or exactly. erased or not counted as knowledge or any of the yeah. ways that he talks about it, right? So that there's a, something productive to think about his critique of, Benjamin's critique of historicism here and say something like society must be defended. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think it's funny too because, you know, my first association when I hear the word historicizing is in a very kind of like post-structuralist, affective, post-colonial way, like historicizing uh, the naturalization of certain bodies and kind of mm-hmm. undoing right. the way that things are raced and gendered. And so that was my immediate reaction. Mm-hmm. I see of historicizing as like a denaturalizing process or That's exhibiting the construction of things right. that we take for granted as a priori, which actually goes well, I think, methodologically what Benjamin is trying to do. But then you just reminded me that historicizing can also be like literally like the whole his story thing, which I... Yes. I guess I go to grad center because I forgot about that. Well, I am. But like, that's exactly my resp- like my reaction, too, because I feel a kind of... I do feel an affinity to historicizing in the mm-hmm. sense of, like, we need to... I, you know, maybe it's problematic methodologically thinking of historicizing as a means of genealogy or through genealogy. Um, what we do is to unpack um, and then unravel those hierarchies in ways that then 
desubjugate those knowledges right. that Foucault is saying is subjugated. Um, and so, but then when you have a critique from Benjamin, you're like, oh, wait, but I, I, how are we approaching this, right? Exactly, because I think that the distinction that he wants to make is between historical materialism and historicism, historicism. right? Yeah. So if we go to yeah. thesis six, he writes, articulating the past historically does not mean recognizing it, quote unquote, the way it really was. It means appropriating a memory as it flashes up in a moment of danger. Mm. Historical materialism wishes to hold fast that image of the past, which unexpectedly appears to the historical subject in a moment of danger. The danger threatens both the content of the tradition and those who inherit it. So if we go back to what Rachel was talking about, right, like the way that Uday Meta talks about liberalism and empire, or the way that Carol Pateman talks about the sexual contract, right? Yeah. That's, I think, in Benjaminian terms, that's the good kind of historicizing, historicizing, right? Because it wrests away the content of the tradition from those who have inherited it. Well, again, you're going on... Oh, sorry. Keep going. It was like going on that I see that Rachel <laughs> underlined this. The danger of becoming a tool of the ruling class is every age must strive anew to wrest tradition away from the conformism that is working to overpower it. The Messiah comes not only um, as the Redeemer, he comes as the victor over the Antichrist. I was reading Holy shit. one... <laughs> like, he's not just pastiche. I know, he's he is not just pastiche. He is not coffee table book, you know. It's, but I think in this sense, I was reading one analysis that was saying the Messiah is, you know, the pro, obviously the proletariat and the Antichrist is the ruling class. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really, it's talking specifically about caste caste struggle, class struggle through that read, but it's also talking more broadly about that very idea about who gets to define in, in the proper form of, and I think it's interesting to, to, um, to think about subjectivity in this sense, which he's mm -hmm. not saying directly, but in some ways he's, you know, saying prioritize the object. Yeah. Well, I don't know, maybe he's not saying that, but it feels like he's trying to draw attention to the way that the subject and the object are, are mediated and that can or the, the, it, but he's he's trying to construct here the contingency of things to yeah. um, to a greater. I think that on my first read, but that the but the contingency gets erased, right? In historicism, and, and that's the thing that you know, because on my first read, I felt like it was very teleological, and then I was like, oh god, like that's I feel like that's a very dangerous route to take, like any teleological view of history towards progress, and of course that is demolished by a number of quotes that we've just read, um, but that contingency is is an aspect of how we need to view history. And right. that is, and indeed, as you just mentioned, John, that historicism erases that contingency. And I think also, Rachel, you're spot on in saying that there is, there is the level of subjectivity because within that, those contingent arrangements, contingent subject positions are being arranged as well. Yeah. Um, who become overpowered and are not in control of the narrative that, that has helped to produce or at least create the conditions for the possibility of their production. Yeah. Right. Or create conditions for, their material life right. impacts mm -hmm. their the choices they can make and the choices they can't make. And it runs through, I mean, we can see this running through academia. We can see this running through, I mean, it's not just you know, always trying to make it, you know, some kind of contemporary relevance, but um, we see this in everyday participation. We mm -hmm. see this as any kind of narrative, seemingly, like from the conference that we had yesterday, a narrative erases and homogenizes not only just history, but entire groups of people, mm -hmm. right? But, of course, history being... A narrative in the sense of like any kind of story we might have, right? The way it really was, or who is a part of this particular community, or how has this particular community, quote, evolved over time to adopt certain kinds of politics over others? 
um, that in that that narrative, right, that story, things are getting homogenized, lost, and and thus and, and in that sense naturalized. Oh, it was only natural that they adopted these kinds of politics. It was only natural that they responded in such a way, this, that, or the other. I'm wondering, given all that we're talking about, what you all think he means when he talks about redemption. So, for example, in That's exactly right. the third go. thesis, the chronicler who narrates events without distinguishing between major and minor ones acts in accord with the following truth. Nothing that has ever happened should be regarded as lost history. Of course, only a redeemed mankind is granted the fullness of its past, which is to say, only for a redeemed mankind has its past become citable in all its moments. Mm. Note the fullness yeah. there. And let me, can I add from the second thesis, which is where I was going with redemption? The past carries with it a secret index by which it is referred to redemption. That skips a couple lines. If so, then there's a secret agreement between past generations and the present one. Then our coming was expected on earth. <laughs> then, like every generation that preceded us, we have been endowed with a weak messianic power, a power on which the past has a claim. Such a claim cannot be settled cheaply. The historical materialist is aware of this. But do we get he wants it? to attack. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, yeah, he wants to unpack that. Um, yeah, what I mean, what is this idea of redemption? And then here, here again is the the reappearance of of, the mess, of messianic power, sure, mm-hmm. right, in cooperation with one another. Um, and and also in the third thesis, I'm interested in the tone as well. Of course, only a redeemed mankind is granted the fullness of his past. The of it's course, like, is a little of, displacing. Yeah, right? yeah, it's also sort of, yeah, it's sort of um, critically flippant in mm-hmm. a way of. Um, who gets to be the chronicler, who gets to narrate. So that's when I read Mm. that, I thought, is he sort of using redemption as like, well, aren't you holy, Mr. Chronicler? You're clearly the chosen people. You're the the redeemed mankind. Mm -hmm. And yet when you just read that quote from the second thesis, I think something different. And I'm not sure what that something is. I'm wondering if that, of course, like, because I think we could read it as like a little distancing, but there's Mm -hmm. no comma there actually after, of course. This is where, like, I wish I knew the German. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. Because it could just be, of course, only redeemed mankind in a way to, like, fight against the naturalization of the victor's history. Like, yeah. well, of course, if we didn't have, if we had a different history, then there'd be this redemption. So as a right? matter so of trying motion, to, like, like right. to take, oh, to take that as natural, yeah. not as, not what has been naturalized is, yeah, yeah. is yeah. natural. I actually think that that's would probably be more accurately. Because, like, when I think about redemption, I think it's helpful to note that then in the fourth thesis, so it comes after these two theses that take up the issue of redemption, he has an entire thesis, um, which starts with a, with two lines from Hegel, interestingly, um, and then goes into class struggle. And it makes me think about the way that redemption is in, I, I read redemption as in part a redemption of those who the victor, the, his, the history's victors have trampled over. Mm-hmm. Right, it's reasserting. That's the weak messianic power. It's the messianic power that's weak of those who have been cast aside or discarded or destroyed by history. Wait, well, I'm sorry. We say the messi. We explain the messianic power part. So, like when he talks about, um, then like every generation. This is the second one again. Mm-hmm. Then, like every generation that preceded us, we have been endowed with the weak messianic power, a power on which the past has a claim. I think that past the claim of the past is the claim of the of history's losers right to speak very colloquially 
right, that their claim, and this I think ties into back to the angel of history as well, that it's their claim that can push us to action or should push us to action and can claim a role in that action of redemption or messianism or something like that. But that's also interesting because I think until that moment, I, I see him, you know, very much using theology to kind of point out the dogmatism of historical materialism, but then the historical materialist is aware of this. Yes. Yeah. I think this is one of the things that I love the most about this piece, is that it fights against, I mean, it's it's, it's opposed to orthodox Marxism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is in historical materialism, and, he, and he's very critical of the German Social Democrats, multiple points in this, mm-hmm. and then the, like, extra fragments, the paralipomena. Uh, the what? The parallel. The what? <laughs> <laughs> I seriously like before. Well, before I walked over to Rachel's apartment to record this, I I played that on like one of these like online how to pronounce this thing. Um, so that I and I still managed to embarrass myself. I did that with irredentism yesterday. <laughs> Ooh, that's a hard one. It was like irredentism, irredentism. Um, and I don't remember what I was saying, but that's okay. Oh, but you were saying oh shoot. Um, <laughs> you can curse. We have an explicit. Word. No, <laughs> uh, I do. Um, well, messianic power is that? What oh yeah, messianic going? power. Oh, is that oh, agency? Oh. Historical materialism oh. is aware. Oh, of this. oh yeah, yeah. But I, I love that his, the, historical materialism has to enlist theology, right? If it's to win, right? That goes back to the the chess playing automaton in the in the first thesis, right? So historical materialism um, can't just discard theology or can't discard the messianic or can't disregard the mystic or something like that. So are you equating his use of theology with the mystic or messianism? Uh, Very loosely. Interesting. I think it's, I think it's, it's, for me, it's just like a shorthand to, for me to think those things together rather than to say that we could use them interchangeably throughout his text. It's, it's helpful for me to group those together. And I might be doing so incorrectly. If watch case, please tell me. I mean, I don't. I don't think it's incorrect. I. I was just trying to work through this notion of how we were thinking of, how we're thinking of theology in general. Like, is it theology as a proper discipline, or are we thinking of? Is he using it as a kind of a metonymic structure and saying mm. theology is? That's a good question. Uh, a, a whole range of disciplines that you can think of. Historical materialism as theology. You can think of historicism as a type of theology. Mm-hmm. You can think of. Any post-structuralism is a kind of theology in what in such a way that you might think that it has a fundamentalism to it, right? Yeah. Which is if that's kind that, of more what I thought. right, where you have these strands that say, if we're talking about orthodox Marxism, for example, yeah. strands that say, if you deviate from these these particular norms of thinking, you're wrong. You're wrong categorically, and thus it's fundamentally wrong. And roots itself in a kind of theology. Maybe that's what he means by this kind of fugitive nature of theology of of the day is small and ugly and has to keep out of sight because the moment it's claimed itself as being the the truly fundamental source of knowledge whatever it might be it then takes on the note of theological it then takes on that kind of the quality of having always to be the source of truth i'm actually very torn now yeah i think it could seriously mean either so part of me is thinking he's using theology as kind of as you said a metonymic structure metonymic structure metonymic structure metonymic structure (laughs) to um point to the dogmatism of any ism in a way like orthodox marxism but actually now that i say that out loud i'm thinking more what you're saying I'm completely split because that also makes sense because maybe he's using theology loosely to refer to that kind of 
specter that haunts of the voice of the weak that have been trampled and underneath the wreckage mm -hmm. that always promises to mm -hmm. come back um, and help redeem mankind or whatever it is. Maybe. And in that sense, mm -hmm. um, it sort of points to the idea that theology is somehow representative of the voices that get left behind that don't define and appropriate history and that the historical materialist is aware of the appropriating they're doing. I think it could exist simultaneously. Look at that. Uh, that it could exist simultaneously as being, you know, in this, and you don't even have to be torn between these two things, not to suggest that, oh, my version of what he might be saying is correct, or to try and validate um, my interpretation of it in any way, but to say that these are two plausible and potentially, you know, um, co-working kind of uh, ways of thinking through theology in, in this particular passage. What could passages, make right? sense, because, I mean, we talked earlier about how history and wholeness both have like these multiple valences right. that are both circulating within the text. Mm -hmm. So right, maybe this is another place where that's happening. And that's why I actually keep wondering deep down, like, Wally, what do you really want? <laughs> because Wally. it's clear what his, it's clear, may he rest in peace. You know, he's yeah. like, it's clear what he's... What happened to the Benjamin Shrine, by the way? Oh, We're in Rachel's apartment, and there used to be a Benjamin quasi-shrine. Wait, I didn't see a Benjamin Shrine I used to have before. a framed photocopy picture of him, but it felt kind of patriarchal, and I was getting annoyed with the whole concept of men and beards talking. Okay. So I took it down. All right. And That's I put up a picture of Roz Pachetsky. Ah! <laughs> Love it. Now it's a blank wall. <laughs> Reinvention. Um, You're oh, actually to be careful because oh, well, because a blank empty wall might be empty homogenous time. So watch oh. out. What about queer messianic time? Oh, we're gonna get there. Oh, don't, don't, I saw that I've, written in the Bible. I know. I saw that. I was like, oh, I not at all time in all caps. Take a left we're, after messianism. You're gonna arrive at queer. queer we're, yeah. we're gonna go there. But so I want to know what he really thinks because it's like, okay, we can glean what some of his critiques are here of time, of appropriation, of history, of dogmatism, of the, the moment that he's in with, you know, critiquing uh, German social democracy, the social democrats in German at the time or the young Marxists or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, okay, so what do you see? Do you see a world where the fragments are united? Do you see a world where... Yes, B. I Sorry. Call on you. <laughs> because, because I want to almost like go back to my comment about how Weber might enter this picture. Okay, maybe go for it. Influence some in. of what Benjamin is saying. Maybe not influence, but I'm seeing this as a as a possibility where you're where the suggestion is what we have is a set of rational quote, rationalized institutions of bureaucracy. We have these things that, if we're lumping these things into progress, rationalized capitalism, rationalized bureaucratic structures, rationalized government, so-called um, representative governments and liberal govern, uh, governments, that in fact trap and encase and do nothing more than um, ultimately harm and violence to people. Um, and that in such a way we can say, well, what is it that you want, Wally? It's like, well, on the one hand, where... Weber was unwilling to kind of situate himself in that world. He kind of wrote, as, as, as Ude Mehta once said, Weber has a tendency and had a tendency to write himself outside of not only the text, but to want to write himself outside of history. Hmm. I feel like what Benjamin is doing is writing himself directly into history mm -hmm. and seeing himself being affected by that. Yeah. And, being, really and being willing to give an affective account of it. Whereas I think Weber, not saying that Weber was cowardly, I think Weber was being overly analytical and was not willing to do what Benjamin, I think, in these texts 
is doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the, like, what do you want, Wally <laughs> question? Which is an amazing what, question. Which I think is a question, and this is one that I think we discussed bringing up before the podcast started, about something like now time. Oh, yeah. by now time. Right. And then what the relation between now time and agency is. Yeah. So can I read a couple of fragments from the text? Yeah. Do it. Um, so this only if they're fragments. Yeah, yeah, they are. Don't worry. I'm never. I'm not going to read a whole thesis. <laughs> don't worry. Um, the first Y'all. is from. I don't know my Roman numerals very well. This would be eighteen. Uh, thesis eighteen. Uh, the end of it. Now time, which is a model of messianic time, comprises the in- comprises. I had always read that as compresses, which is <laughs> interesting. So now time, which has a model of messianic time, comprises the entire history of mankind in a tremendous abbreviation coincides exactly with this figure which the history of mankind describes in the universe. Whoa. If we go to the end of the next, which in this version is list, is, is named as A. A, yeah. Um, he, he, and he is the historian. So he grasps the constellation into which his own era has entered, along with a very specific earlier one. Thus, he establishes a conception of the present as now time, shot through with splinters of messianic time. Whoa. And if you'll let me go to, then to Do B. Do it. Go on. Whoa. Um, the soothsayers who queried time and learned what, had, learned what it had in store certainly did not experience it as either homogenous or empty. If we skip down. We know that the Jews were prohibited from inquiring into the future. The Torah and the prayers instructed them in remembrance. This disenchanted, disenchanted, disenchanted the future, which holds sway over all those who turn to soothsayers for enlightenment. That's a hard one to say, soothsayers. This does not imply, however, that for the Jews, the future became homogenous, empty Mm. time. For every second was the small gateway in time through which the Messiah might enter. I need to reread that 17. Yeah, I know. But a couple, I mean, a couple <laughs> interesting things to note that all, everything I just read could have been the final thesis, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. one of them was the technical one in thesis 18. And then A and B, if we look at the footnotes that are provided in this version, were these last two sections appear under the separate headings A and B at the end of an early mm-hmm. untitled draft. And they were um, added back in as a supplement to this text. I feel like I'm reading his diary. Like, I'm yeah. privy to something mm-hmm. that's really... That's one hell of a fucking diary. I, I can't even... I need, I really... I actually Mine's need to... Mine's like, I watched that. X-Files today <laughs> and ate a lot of chocolate. You might have I'm been really able to say some to... things about messing up time, though. <laughs> true. If you did that true, yeah. in your day. This also, I wonder... Okay, this is just going to throw Go this out there. No, actually, before I do that... Can we talk about what you think he means by now time, which is a model of messianic time? Yeah, I, I still have Comprises a the entire history of mankind in, tr- in a tremendous abbreviation. What does that one phrase mean? Is it, so in the same sentence, is he saying, hold on, comprehends the entire history of... So he uses comprises. the word... Or we, comprise, we, we keep comprises. trying to put other verbs in there. I know. So which makes me think comprises is important. Comprises the entire <laughs> history of mankind in a tremendous abbreviation. So in the same sentence, he's using a term, compri- uh, not comprise, entire, right? Which implies a kind of wholeness, or at least suggests one. 
and then says in a tremendous abbreviation. Yeah. What exactly is being what what is the tremendous abbreviation? What is the abbreviation? I think it goes of back all the complicatedness of history. I think it goes back to when he talks about like appropriating all of history yeah. and the okay. moment flashing up and so, yeah. flashing yeah, up in a moment of danger. It's short shifting the real material experience. And so it's leading into that first statement from A, which is historicism contents itself with establishing the causal nexus among these various moments in history. That makes sense. Okay. But I don't understand coincides exactly with the figure which the history of mankind describes in the, the universe. universe. Well, who's the figure? Yeah, it coincides exactly with the figure. I think he was a little, like, high. When he, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like, also it could be he's thinking while he's writing, because these aren't mm-hmm. published, intended right. for the public manuscript. And right. So. Coincides exactly with the figure which the history of mankind describes. I mean, maybe then the context of the rest of that thesis is important. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting where it starts, because it starts in a place that none of the other theses, if I remember correctly, start. It starts with science. Yeah. It starts with a quote. In relation to the history hmm. of all organic life on Earth, writes a modern biologist, quote, the paltry 50 millennia history of Homo sapiens equates to something like two hmm. seconds at the close of a 24-hour day. Hmm. On this scale, the history of civilized mankind would take up one-fifth of the last second of the last hour. And that's where the so quote ends. Yeah. There's no citation. Mm-hmm. And then we get what I had read a few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So that, I don't know what to say about that. But, but so that also that makes me wonder, it's begging the question. Oh, oh, well, there it is then. then but okay, I'm going to get back to whatever question's been begged, so don't forget it. So, I'm, yeah, do you want to go ahead no, and no, say No, no, I want to hear what okay, you well, think about Okay, well, because then it has to. So the figure is thinking about this moment that these biologists, and it's something I would probably ascribe, you know, subscribe to to a certain degree, that the figure is that precisely the two seconds of time at the close of the end of, you know, at the close of a 24-hour day. He's referring to a figure in which it's a, you know, that this particular oh, is right. Mean. The figure yeah, is the yeah. two seconds. That's the that's the referent that he's. So he's saying now. That's as an example of now time, yes. basically. Yeah, but but in the sense like the figure which the history of mankind describes in the universe. The history of mankind is the clo- is the is those two seconds or are those two seconds and that's described saying, like, in the universe? History of mankind in quotes. So right. when we say the history of mankind, mankind he's right. saying that's like literally this glimpse that leaves a lot describes in the universe. Which I think here is like then it expands because then when you're really thinking about like ha- just how broad the and how expansive if we think of. And I don't even think quantum mechanics thinks of time, right? I think I think Benjamin and quantum mechanics get along really well. Hmm. But like thinking of like from the moment of the, the so-called Big Bang to now, right? It's even much smaller than two seconds at the close of the. I think you know not to again not deifying you know cosmos or sure. Carl Sagan, but it's something like much more of a fraction of a second at the end of a close uh, the close of a twenty-four hour hmm. period. Yeah. Um, and and so the, yeah, so that's getting hung up on that. I think that that's what he's referring to. I think that's the referent. So, but what was the? You know, thing was I was question? just thinking about because this is something I'm thinking about separate from this is neoliberal time. How does this help us understand neoliberal time under wow. the guise of capitalism hmm. and the cost benefit analysis of time and the idea that every second has to be used towards oh some form of productivity in the world? How does yeah. that clearly there's a there's question. a parallel in terms of the appropriation of time by the capitalist or by the ruling class? That's so right. The antichrist. But look at how like it. But even then, um, I'm so on board with that that kind of question or like where that critique where that question could go because I mean if you look at like even um, 
Winthrop, you know, John Winthrop in early American or colonial history and the ways in which they're writing about, um, you know, their relationship not only with God Mm -hmm. as Protestants, but um, as an early development of a kind of work ethic that exposes this, you must be doing something productive all the time that eventually evolves into this neoliberal status of always being productive, which reminds me of walking through an airport and seeing like, uh, you know, you know, at an admiral's club, like, Hmm. you know, be leisurely, but be productive at the same time, you know, that you can work while you're, you know, just sort of like kicking back. Um, and that's your subjectivity these days, which is to always be productive, homo economicus, as it were. And John, Mm -hmm. you've published an article about like the ways in which the body is like worked on, right? In the the sense of always being productive. I mean, it's interesting because that's a really great question, Rachel. I mean, part of me wants to say, it's too simplistic an answer, I know that. But part of me wants to say that it's, like, neoliberal times, you know, if one of the things we want to read is neoliberalism is the insertion of everything into an economic rationality and everything gets evaluated on the cost-benefit analysis or a human capital level or something like Mm -hmm. that, um, which is kind of like the Foucauldian way of understanding neoliberalism. But whatever, if that's what we're going to go with, right, then it turns... Literally, literally every second or every subsecond under neoliberalism into an attempt to turn it into a history of the victors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so that capitalism absolutely. has to be reproduced at every second, every second and split second and, you know, infinitesimally small, unmeasurable unit of time. And that, and there was a second part to that thought and I forgot. But, but it was a brilliant thought. Because it's a brilliant right. thought, but it also kind of complicates and begs the question, where does the Marxist fit into this? Because in neoliberalism, if the, if historical materialism is one lens through which we can critique neoliberal time, and yet that's precisely what Benjamin is in some sense critiquing. Well, I think that, okay, so... Because they're also victims. I think it's sort of like undoing... I mean, it really goes back to, like, undoing epistemic privilege and knowledge-making, not just for the capitalists, but for the mactivists and manarchists who call themselves Uh, themselves Marxists. Well, yeah, I think, like, uh, the brochalists or whatever that I just That's, like, the most accurate category. God, you know, but, you know, that's right, I think... Wasn't it Lukács who said, um, you know, given all that is orthodox uh, Marxism, um, it, even if what like even if everything that Marx predicted were wrong and false, the method is still yeah, true. Yeah, you still get historical materialism. It's historical materialism, which is in the sense the ways that we can disarticulate all of this. So where do where do Marxists fit into this picture? I think. Wait, that, can you say that last part again? Even, even if, if Mar- even if everything that Marx predicted was wrong yeah. and comes out to be false. Uh-huh. The the method is still true, which Meaning is historical that materialism. Meaning there is a dialectical forward movement of history based upon lived reality. I would I wouldn't want to say that there's a teleological. Actually, so less teleological. He's less. I think right? that he's like actually speaking to this notion of of disarticulating the way we would, and in a Benjamin fashion, maybe even disarticulating the way that we would otherwise lump history. Okay. And so. I think it's important to understand then Marxists or historical materialists or however we define ourselves um, have, I think, are then the agents on some level of messianic time to a, to a certain degree. Because what you're doing mm-hmm. is saying we have to disarticulate these moments. We mm-hmm. have to stop this neoliberal trend of, you know, making productive every moment of our, you know, or, you know, our biological being. Yeah. Every second is also a second that is depleted from, you know, our own life, as it were. Yeah. Um, and so 
I think you know to put to situate Marxists within this would be to situate you know some, you know potentially uh, Marxists as bearers of this kind of thing. But you know, people within the Marxist tradition doesn't have to be an orthodox Marxist or someone who right. can read through Marxism and glean what Benjamin gleaned, which is a certain kind of agency, right? Yeah, I mean, I keep thinking in this conversation of Kathy Weeks's book, The Problem with Work, which I read recently in part because Rachel said I needed to read it. Um, Post-work imaginary. Yeah, and, <laughs> but, and I, I mean, it's one of the best books I've read recently by far. Um, but I'm in thinking about the way that she talks about um, the dominance of work societies and the imaginary of work um, that is synonymous with but not entirely captured by the category of capitalism or neoliberalism or something like that. Um, and that's the need for utopian imaginaries where utopia is understood in a particular way and the way that she talks about utopia as kind of both a demand but also a perspective. Um, and so I, and I, there was something else we were talking about like 20 minutes ago where I was thinking also of the Kathy Weeks book, but I forgot what that was. It's called The Problem with Work. Everyone should read yeah, it. Yeah, it's really, I really good. I haven't read it. I'm going to go read it. Um, we should get to talk about it on the show, actually. Yeah, but, actually, um, that's a great idea. And so it, 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 it strikes me that there's something about Benjamin's hist- concept of historical materialism that has this particular whether you call it utopian or messianic or transcendent or however you want to frame it, that kind of claim built within historical materialism that those two have to be allied together, that that's like the only way they can win if we go back to the very first thesis, right? That the only way historical materialism gets to win is if it enlists the services of theology. Theology. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, of course, fugitive in the sense because it always has to hide away and and is ugly and we don't want to think about it like on those terms. But how are you likening that to Kathy Weeks, the, I'm, the I'm, theology? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that, I mean, that Benjamin is, I think, interested in, I think Benjamin's category of messianism or messianic time and the way that Weeks talks about utopia in regards okay. to work mm-hmm. and anti-work and post-work are doing some of the same things. I think you're right. Almost like a prefigurative thing, although for Kathy Weeks more. I don't know that Benjamin's like prefiguring any sort of society but i mean maybe that does go back to the idea of wholeness you know right like really really loosely interpreted as sort of like that which isn't sort of lost in the wreckage and and fragmented um i think this is one of the first moments like after having read this that i became truly sympathetic to the notion of transcendence even even given like whatever levinas says about transcendence whatever (laughs) it is (laughs) but as as you know sets of conditions or maybe even a conditional moment or a condition for the moment where we can begin that process and thinking through how to take apart a history that has otherwise been homogenized and, and white. I mean, it's interesting though, like, I don't want to read Benjamin's concept of messianism as only transcendent. Yeah, no, I don't I want to read yeah. it. I, I think it's somehow both transcendent and it's imminent. imminent. It is definitely like all imminent. Like philosophers. <laughs> yes. That's a good point. It is definitely imminent. Um, but I, it's it's the first time I've actually like gone through it's and confused, not but I'm it's not both. you know drinking the haterade and saying ugh transcendence oh my god it has nothing to do with the particularities of everyday life. But um, that's but because it, it exactly absolutely does. does have to yes. do with the particularities. Mm-hmm. It's through, but that's what weeks mm-hmm. is. I mean, weeks among so many in a tradition of like you know people advocating for not just Marxist feminism but looking at 
uh, critiquing liberal frame, liberal rights frameworks in general, and thinking about what's beyond advocating for workers' rights in yeah. general. Yeah. You know, is is it's precisely the lived material conditions and and our examination of that that allows us to um, imagine different relationships. Yeah. To time to each other. Um, yeah, which and thus I think that another connection, and this is something that I've written about a little bit, and that other friend of the podcast slash former host Joanna Tice and I have submitted a paper about to present at a conference. But plug it. I plug think it. that Benjamin and people thinking about queer time here. I'm specifically thinking about Jose Esteban Munoz and Jack Halberstam and Elizabeth Freeman. Um, are actually doing kind of very similar things, and that I want to read. So I've written a little bit about reading queer time as messianic in hmm. the sense of Benjamin and of Agamben, and then reading Agamben and Benjamin's messianic time as queer. Hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot to think about in there, whether it's about, you know, so for Benjamin, it's a critique of the history of the victors, and I think for the, you know, thinkers of queer time, it's about the his the, the victory of a heteronormative and repronormative and chrononormative, um, which is that last one's Freeman, um, that kind of notion of time, yeah. and that it's, and that there's something only about alternative ways for affiliation or sex or family or kinship or uh, whatever for these various queer thinkers that one can challenge mm -hmm. this heteronormative logic. And I think there's some affiliation there between that and kind of something like Now Time and Benjamin. Like, I think there are all these productive connections to make Certainly. between Benjamin and these thinkers of queer time, which also is another way of, I think... Uh, being able to articulate Benjamin in the present, so to speak, yeah. and so and so, like in some ways, it's a giving back of, or it's an, it's a. I don't say giving back to that implies too much agency for the theorist, but it's a recognition of the claim that Benjamin may the weak messianic claim Benjamin may have on us, and right? it's also like. I mean, I think it's also the idea that whoever is the victor of history, whoever gets to appropriate and define what time is and how it works basically, um, and to name it and to describe it within the vein of this notion of time, or to describe the real material reality within a concept, um, a particular concept of time, it kind of exposes also pa the power knowledge discourse, mm -hmm. tri the other yeah. triumvirate, yeah. the other triad or whatever. Um, because if we look again at queer time, what it's one thing it's undoing is the notion of reproductive time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and whoever gets to define reproductive time um, there's also inherent power relationships within that discourses around what the good woman should do when they should have a child. Um, and within that is other relationships about how that woman should act within the world. So that's just one specific example, but obviously like there's multiple notions of time that queerness is trying to undo Absolutely. in the same yeah. way that, um, kind of in the same way that the redeemer is always haunting. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, just as my, you know, when I was hearing that, I was thinking, and I'm going to respond briefly to John, what you're saying is like, theorists, giving too much agency to theorists. I think that there's an ethical moment in what Benjamin is writing here is that who, who then are the, uh, the bearers of this, you know, these histories mm -hmm. or who then becomes the bearer. And I think that the ethical account would be, or at least maybe the condition would be, um, only those who see time or history as being 
in a state of disarticulation or needing to be disarticulated. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's in that sense that um, there are two things. One, it's Benjamin's kind of call to action, even though he's not necessarily directing this at anyone. It's a call to action for, for critical thinkers to engage and be those bearers. And two, also to say there is agency in, you know, mm -hmm. in being those bearers, but to always be self-reflective in how, what am I doing? What am I writing and reproducing certain kinds of, of homogenizing time? And by writing this, he's taking that agency, even though Absolutely. he didn't know that we would be sitting yeah. here reading it or talking yeah, about it. Because exactly. it's what you said, John, about how he's situating himself within history. Or maybe you said that. How he's situating being, yeah. himself within history. Yeah. And so incumbent upon that is kind of a imminent critique. It is. <laughs> you and, Kantian. <laughs> and the other thing is that, I mean, what you're talking about is I think really accurate because I think we again need to highlight that for Benjamin it's ultimately a class struggle, yeah. right? That inserts itself and and does the messianic thing, yeah. right? So maybe we can end by reading, maybe group reading one more thesis. Can we try reading it all at the same time? Yeah. Okay. Thesis four. All right. Gonna get someone gonna, we're going to be reading. We're going to be reading at different rates. It's, it's like it's, it's messianic time okay, in the so podcast itself. Five. So, four, oh wait, are we reading three. the quote? No, we're not no, going to read the quote. Five, <laughs> four, three, two, one. Class struggle for which for a historian schooled in Marx is, is always in evidence. evidence is a fight for the crude and material things without which no refined and spiritual things could exist. But these latter things, which are present in class struggle, are not present as a vision of spoils that fall to the victor. They are alive in the struggle as confidence, courage, humor, cunning, and fortitude and, and have effects that reach so far, far back into the, the past. past. I know, exactly, seriously. They constantly, <laughs> they constantly call into, into question every victory, past and present, of the rulers. As, as flowers turn toward the sun, what has been strives to return by dint of a secret heliotropism Towards that sun, which, which is rising in the sky of history. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> the historical materialist must, must be aware of this inconspicuous, most inconspicuous of all transformations. Amen. Uh. segment, my Tumblr friend from Canada, and this is a very special my Tumblr friend from Canada session because we have a live question asker and a live guest that's going to then answer some questions Clearly he's not from Canada. He's <laughs> right. in the room and we're in the <laughs> <laughs> Oops, secret. You know him from our episode on Leotard. Sid, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. This is, this is so exciting. Yeah, Sid, so, so you should ask the question... And okay. uh, the, is the first live question ever in the history of the wow. podcast. I'm honored. Um, 
I guess it's something that I was thinking myself. Um, and my question um, is, is for you guys, or I guess people working within the academy, especially in Europe and North America in particular. Um, I noticed this trend where people pronounce French theorists' names very correctly the way the French would pronounce it. So I know, especially on this podcast, there's a lot of use of Francière. French theory um, or continental philosophy to broaden, broaden it up. Um, but the same thing when it comes to people from, say, the subcontinent are post-colonial theorists. Jazz Beer Pouar. So, for example, I kept hearing Jazz Beer Pouar, and, it's, and beer. It's, it's something that I've noticed within the academy that people um, take the privilege to sort of butcher names of people coming out of the subcontinent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I have a suspicion <laughs> that it's a remnant <laughs> or a display of the coloniality of power. Um, so I would like you guys to respond to that. And if that's an accurate um, observation on my part, because it just struck me out of the blue. And I was like, huh, that's something I should ask these guys because they're probably the it. most progressive that's and enlightened true. white no. people I know. Nice, but not true. Uh, um, I'm not progressive. I'm an anarchist. I'm not progressive. I mean, I, I think Sid's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, even, you know, like, and it's even those that we can at least pretend to quasi whiteify, mm -hmm. right? Like, people will go like France Fanon. Yeah, right? yeah. So, France like, Fanon. because yeah. that can, like, be said in a way that, like, all right, well, yeah. we can just make it French and then they're white, so we're cool, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think. But I, I think right. it is. It's a, it's a display of power. Absolutely. It's an effect of power. Totally. The fact that, like, you know, we can be, we can, he we're used to hearing all around us the names of these French people in passing even before we came to the GC. Mm -hmm. And then the same is not true for post-colonial or decolonial thinkers or people yeah coming from the global south or not in that continental tradition and so it's sort of um taking a, and, and it's the same thing of the ability to name it's like oh the mm -hmm. ability to decide how to pronounce yeah mm -hmm. it's very true yeah it doesn't happen just for, for french theorists i mean german theorists i mean for the most part we, we kept talking about we kept talking about benjamin and not, yeah, not walter benjamin, benjamin, benjamin yeah, right yeah, yeah. right um Levinas. But, but, so we haven't like we have we've anglicized like <laughs> Like Nietzsche, like we say Nietzsche, but we, you know. But then everyone says, it's you know, it's Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Exactly. Yeah, you know, so there's like a know, double display yeah, of yeah, power. So it's, it's we could anglicize yeah, it, could but anglicize no, we're going to say it right like the German exactly. I think it's there. I think that it's, I think it's something that people who are within this, these particular fields need to work on and, and have like an active engagement with. Otherwise, then it is nothing more than a reproduction. Like today, it's a reproduction of certain displays of power, but it's washing away a certain kind of like agency on the part of those scholars of color. Mm -hmm. So, and it also begs a certain self reflexivity to use a very go a very uh, um, hip term, but I think one that's accurate. That's right in this context. So from this Meeting point us. forward, I will. I well, first of all, I won't produce or uh, pronounce irrigaray uh, in the true French sort. Of, it's, just, <laughs> it's just too fucking Irrigary. hard. Uh, but yeah, I said I think that's a, that's 
absolutely spot on. Yeah, and a good challenge for us. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Sid, will you stick around to answer some questions with us? It would be my pleasure. All right. So and then will you stick first... around after the podcast? <laughs> Maybe. <Yay. laughs> then we, our first question comes from Josephine in Montreal. How does one approach slash respond to slash navigate living with someone who is, by all standard definitions, paranoid about insects and rodents slash pets? <laughs> is, it, is it possible... Amazing. Not to have a nervous breakdown, <laughs> trying to have a calm conversation about how bugs and rodents, you know, that are the norm in urban spacey, spaces. Love from Montreal, Josie. Whoa. All right, Josephine Montreal. That's <laughs> amazing. Uh, it's hard for me to answer this question, Josephine from Montreal, because I am more on the uh, paranoia <laughs> side about insects and bugs slash pests. But this note, this is not my roommate writing. I would like to specify that. And so, um... Maybe I'll take a stab. Sure, go be go. So just see, you know, I think over time, one has to sort of, like, learn to live with the, the quirks of one's roommates, but being able to also communicate that, uh, being, you know, as it were, being overly paranoid... Uh, is in itself problematic and causes tension and being like, and being just present with them um, and having the conversation and not sort of like just, you know, staying in your room and avoiding, you know, contact because the bottom line is like there does, there is a necessary thing that everyone needs to realize is living in large cities like New York, you're going to have a pest problem at some point. Not saying that it's always there, but at some point there will be a coverage. At some point there's <laughs> going to be a fucking spider. At some point you might find a mouse. But it does not cause for an immediate, you know, um, you know, we need to go full melt lockdown like DEFCON 5 um, and, you know, go through the entire uh, apartment and, you know, rig it as some kind of, like, you know, death trap. <laughs> but simultaneously, like, not having a nervous breakdown thinking that the roommate is unwilling to have that conversation. So just, like, just sit, sit that person down and talk to them. Try journaling. <laughs> journal okay. too. Journal. Be passive aggressive. Leave them notes. <laughs> okay, I was going to go. Hey, I was going to go. suggest some passive aggressiveness, but you all have better advice. Sid, what what advice do you have for Josie? Um, I I I think B hit the hit the nail on the head. I don't know. Whatever strategy works for you. Um, violence, non-violence, <laughs> passive aggressive. Mind you, there are very, takes, various man. kinds of violence. Of obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. um, because I mean, it's gonna be violent, whether yeah. it's squashing that insect or being, and it will not be televised. Discursively yeah. challenging your roommate. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think symbol. you know. Ultimately, like having a conversation that like acknowledges that you two have different perspectives on the situation. Use I like, statements from from the start. Being like, I understand. I understand that we have different opinions on this. How can we make it work? And some of the ways that I think be in. Sid are suggesting. Use your conflict <laughs> resolution training from your latest human resources. <laughs> oh my god, that's very Break true. out into yeah. groups and use chart paper statement. and markers and talk about um, how you want to come together in the future. But Make you sure some... you have a secretary recording. Yeah, yeah. I do have some practical advice for Josephine from Montreal, though. If bed bugs are what you were, are oh, you worried about? I don't know if Montreal has a bed bug situation, but I've had bed bugs a Oy. number of years ago. 
And this is a tip from another friend of the podcast, Erica Iverson. Erica! You can Erica. order online. I like Dichotomous Earth or something, which is like this non-toxic powder. It's called Dichotomous that, Earth? That, di, dichotomous. I can't I don't know how to pronounce dichotomous it. Dichotomous Earth. It's kind of... <laughs> I, I just... I, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, that should be the name of an article or something. Um, probably about like Deleuze and... Re-territorialization, probably. Um, right, which Deleuze. is another one that like, we do. Um, Jills. So you want to you want to go on, go to a store where you can get that ordered online, and the little like puffer thing that you use to spread it, and you put it like around your floorboards and in between like a mattress and a box. Sounds spring. like a lot of work. It's not. It like you can do it in ten. You can do it into ten. You can do it in ten minutes. That's the practice. And it's like yeah, not yeah. super expensive. Bed bucks on that thing. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would agree with that. So yeah. But it does create violence towards the bed bugs. Absolutely. All right, one more question. This question, so this is from Vince in Carolina. Now, Vince in Carolina wrote us a really detailed, long email with some, several questions. So we're going to take them one at a time. Oh, wow. All right? So our first question from Vincent Carolina, with more questions to come from Vincent Carolina later, is there any form of being powerful that isn't always already super fucked up? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave it there because there are some other questions, but we're going to answer those over the next several episodes. So we'll just go with that. Okay. I'm going to put on my um, Carol Gould lens, and she would probably say in this situation... That we should think about the ideas of power with and power Very to. Very nice. Yes. So are we talking about power over, power against, or are we talking about solidarity? Mm-hmm. If we're talking about solidarity beyond an individual liberal framework of atomized individual liberals, then <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, I think, a kind of power that is non-hegemonic necessarily. That might be a little bit mm-hmm. utopian of me, but that will be part of our next question, Vince. Well, I think, no, that's true, right? It's it, intersectional power or uh, power amongst people who are identifying with each other intersectionally and then in, that reci- in those reciprocal relations build upon that kind of, you know, this notion of being powerful. Because I think that when I read that, I see feminists um, and many times feminists of color saying and re and, and reappropriating that concept of power. And I believe that's a beautiful thing. And I don't think that that in itself is fucked up. Um, I think that when certain people who are already privileged within certain matrices use that term, that's fucked up. Um, Use which term specifically? I am powerful or seeing themselves as being in power or exerting power over others. Um, And so I think that in that sense, one needs to be cognizant of what power, what kind of privileging structures or matrices are at play. And the privileging structures inherent in the word empowerment. Right. Yeah, that, that, that needs unpacking altogether. Sid. Just be critical and self-reflexive, man. Yeah. <laughs> or woman, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> the spectrum, yeah. With self-reflexivity. Yeah, I'll just keep adding on, and I think we think about Arendt and the way she talks about power in on violence. Yeah, yeah, about yeah, acting in concert in public, right? Yeah. Which I think is one way that's not necessarily Resistance. super fucked up. Although that, other then for her, when it becomes super fucked up, that's when it becomes violence, yes. right? Um, no, she says you can't get violence out of power, but that's a compli- we, we can talk about that. That's her being different people. Um, and then we could also think about power in a I'm gonna go there like Spinoza way um, in terms Whoa. of like a power oh, like yeah. to oh, act and be acted upon, yeah. and if you and if you enter into not relations not. right, then in a way that increase both kind of individual and collective powers that's to good. act yeah. right. That's another form of power that's not 
always already super fucked up. Yeah. That's right. All right. But it can be. Vincent Carolina, we're going to answer the rest of your questions over the next few episodes. Our next episode is going to be on C. Riley Snorton, who B is going to select a reading for us to read. It's going to be about uh, the intersection of uh, race and transibility, um, and specifically necropolitics. That's going to be a really great great episode that I'm really looking forward to. So, Sid, thank you for joining us for part of the show. Thank you. You just magically appeared. I I did. Wow. Just happened to be in the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this was powerful with four of us in a way that wasn't always already. Thanks for empowering me. magical. So, until next time, um, bye everybody. Bye. Always bye. already. Thank you for joining us on the Always Already podcast, which is a creation of Rachel Brown, B. Altman, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwayswarreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us text you'd like us to discuss or device questions to answer to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Like us on Facebook. Thank you to B, covering Fleetwood Mac, and to my friend Jordan Cass, covering Radiohead for the music in today's episode. Until next time, bye. <laughs>